the words, but also a blessing to us. We pray that he may have the words to encourage through the Holy Spirit. And we ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. And what a pleasure it is to be here with you this morning. I trust that you were blessed as we spent that time in worship together. And it is strange being here and knowing that you can see me, but I can't see you. Uh, But I'll just have to deal with that, I guess. And it's my pleasure to be able to open the word with you this morning. And we are continuing our series on the book of James today. And so we started by looking five weeks ago at the way that, that trials and temptations are brought about for good in the Christian life. And then we looked at the importance of not only reading the word, but putting what the word of God says into action. James then continued to exhort his readers to show no favoritism, as favoritism does not fulfill the law of God to love your neighbour. Fourth, we looked at the relationship between having faith in God and good deeds. And we we were reminded by James that faith is made complete in action. And last week, Wally looked at James 3 and the power of the tongue and its ability to destroy. And so I hope that you can see a bit of a pattern here. See, James is not only concerned with our understanding of, of God, but he is, he's not only here to expound the deepest mysteries of the Trinity or of the Incarnation. No, James is deeply practical At every step along the way, he is giving instruction for Christian living. And James is consistently uh, concerned with reminding his Jewish Christian audience that knowing God is only half the battle. That a husband who says that he loves his wife and yet consistently acts against her calls into question his love. Likewise, a Christian who says they love God and have his wisdom but does not show that love in action, calls into question their love for God. If we truly know God, it should exhibit in us a response in the way we live our lives. And with this in mind, we come to our passage in James 4. And as I was doing my research this week, I came across a story which I thought might help frame some of our thinking. On the 31st of September... 2019, Max Sylvester called air traffic control just over an hour into his first ever flight in a Cessna aircraft. To their horror, Max informed them that his instructor who was sitting next to him had fallen unconscious and would not wake up, and that he was now alone in the air. They asked him, and these are actual quotes from the conversation, do you know how to operate the plane? And he responded, this is my first flight. They quickly called an instructor to join them in the air traffic control tower and he began to, the instructor began to explain step by step how Max could land the aircraft on his own. His wife and three children watched on far below. For an hour, Max carefully practised every single skill he needed in order to be able uh, to learn, in order to be able to land the plane, and had several practices of lining up the plane with the runway. All the while, the instructor in the tower carefully explained everything that was necessary for Max to survive. 
trusting entirely in the people in the tower, Max finally safely landed the plane after over two hours in the air. And this story shows for us the importance of trust uh, and obedience in the life of a trainee pilot. And as we look at James chapter 4 verses 1 to 10 today, we will see that the Christian life too requires obedience and trust in the God in whom we believe. And so if you'll turn with me to James chapter 4, we will start from verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Allow me to open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the word spoken through James this morning. Father, we ask that just as James instructed his audience to consider their lives and their actions, that you would reveal our actions in our own lives this morning. Father, speak through James. Speak to us. Prompt our hearts. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. James begins with a powerful question. He says in verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? I'm not sure if you experience quarrels in your life, but I'm sure that you could think of many reasons for some of the conflicts you might face. Perhaps your co-worker just cannot seem to get anything right. And so you get frustrated and argue. Or your partner is not in tune enough with your feelings, and so after a long, hard day, they say something that tips you off and you fight. Or maybe you cannot seem to get along with someone because of something they said to you long in the past. These are all very normal reasons for conflict. But you may notice that they are all framed uh, in respect to the other person. And that is why James answers his own question here. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't you know that they come from your desires that battle within you? Just as James has gone to great lengths to show that uh, our, our faith is made complete by action, 
Now he comes and he flips that argument and he says that our desires are the very things that motivate our actions. And so the first thing we learn today is that selfish desires create selfish action. James implores us to recognise our own fault in the conflicts in our lives. Your fight with your co-worker may be because of uh, your desire for them to make your job easier. Or your fight with your partner might be because of your expectation that they will behave in a certain way and be in tune with you in a way they're not. And so your desire is not filled Your long feud with another might be because of your desire for them to apologise so you can win the argument. James continues, You desire but you do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. These are strong words. And it doesn't seem likely that James is actually accusing anyone of murder here. No, he's speaking to a specific audience. And so if he was doing that, his words would be much stronger. His indictment would be much harsher. What James is saying, however, is that the desires of our heart, when they go unchecked, can lead to significant or even violent actions. When I was fresh out of high school, I spent some time working in retail. And it was the kind of retail where you have specialised products and so having a good understanding of those products was necessary for the job. And the best part of the job was being able to help people uh, find the right product for them and get what they needed and leave happy. But the days that I would dread in that job were the days when we were low on stock, especially during a sale. And there could be lots of reasons for us being low on stock. It could be that uh, we had placed an order, but the order had not arrived yet, and so some of our our products were running a little bit low. Or it could be that uh, we had tried to place an order, but the supplier had told us that they didn't have the product. Or sometimes it was simply better for business for us to prioritise other products over the one that the people were after. And so it was on those times when we were low on stock that as a salesperson I would receive the most abuse. Pleasant and cheerful men and women would walk into our store and I would go and greet them and begin to serve them and I would realise very quickly that the product they were looking for we did not have. And so I would, as soon as I could, tell them that we did not have that product and I would, if I was allowed to, be transparent with the reason why it wasn't in stock. And at this point the person would change. They had been kind and polite all the way up until that moment. But when they realised that their desire for a specific product and an easy purchase could not be fulfilled, they would change. In a fit of anger, they would shout at me, explaining all the reasons why we should have the product in stock and all the inconveniences we had caused them. And eventually they would leave in a huff and I would go out the back to get a drink of water and to calm myself down knowing that I too had become angry in the altercation. None of these people came into our store planning to become angry or to shout or to cause conflict. But when our desires that are self-serving go unchecked and are not met, 
they can eventuate in actions we would never imagine ourselves taking. The fruit of self-serving desires are disunity, conflict and violence. Selfish desires create selfish action. 1 Peter 2.11 encourages us, Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. The command is to actively acknowledge our sinful desires, our desires that create conflict, and abstain from them. And so what desires should we have instead? Well, this section of James immediately follows his teaching on two types of wisdom. Earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And you'll notice if you look back to chapter 3 verse 16 that the description of earthly wisdom is that it is full of envy and selfish ambition. Much like the desires that James is talking about in chapter 4. And the alternative given in chapter 3 verse 17 is God's wisdom which is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Instead of setting our hearts on our own desires, we are to set our hearts on God's. God's desires which are pure, peace-loving and merciful. For if these are our desires, then that will be the fruit that we see in our action. That is why James goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 3, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James has already stated way back in chapter 1, verse 5, that those who ask for God's wisdom will receive God's wisdom. But now he tells us that those who ask according to their own desires will receive nothing. And so our first encouragement from today is to take some time, stop and evaluate our lives. Become intentional in self-reflection. Contemplate where our conflicts, where our our frustrations and where our angers are and ask God to reveal our desires, our wants, our expectations, and replace them with his wisdom, which leads to peace, love, and mercy. James continues his letter by talking about relationships. And I am personally personally fascinated with the way that children form friendships. I think it's an incredible thing. You see, as adults, we might have some friends and some acquaintances and some work colleagues and some casual neighbours and people you just know of. And you're very comfortable with having different levels of relationships with each. Not so with kids. For kids, being friends is not enough. If you are not best friends, then why be friends at all? I am young enough, believe it or not, to still remember the bitter betrayal of realising that your best friend doesn't consider you their best friend. Or the horrifying pain of a friend inviting three people over to their birthday and not you. 
in those circumstances the reaction of a child is like something out of a soap opera. And yet the dramatic rise and fall of children's friendships are through them we are drawn to realise something. That the kind of deep, meaningful and personal relationship that children desire requires exclusivity. You cannot be best friends with everyone and so if you are someone's best friend then that is a relationship that you experience exclusive to others. We see this in marriage also. The definition of marriage that is read out at many weddings states that marriage is to the exclusion of all others. The failure to uphold this value can often lead to the end of a marriage. Intimate and valuable relationships require exclusivity. And James picks up on this idea in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? If you had read the entirety of James, the, the whole book today, you would know that James often refers to his audience as his brothers and sisters. And yet here he addresses them as adulterers. It's unlikely once again that they are, he's actually accusing them of adultery. But instead we are drawn back to the Old Testament image of Israel as God's wife. In Jeremiah 3 verse 20, God exclaims, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. The lengths that James has gone to over the last four chapters to describe the different actions of the believers is to show them that by aligning themselves with the world, they have been unfaithful to God. By discriminating against the poor, by speaking against one another, by choosing their wisdom over God's and placing their desires over his. By choosing the world, they have been unfaithful in their relationship to God. James wants us to know that our relationship with God is no joke. That is why James says that God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. In other words, he jealously longs for us to be his. And so secondly, in our passage today, we see that we must choose between God and the world. Jesus picks up on this theme in Matthew chapter 7. From verse 13, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many find it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It is far easier to find the path that leads away from God. In fact, that is often where our desires take us. But through deliberate action and prayer, we can turn away from the world and toward God. But I'm sure you know how difficult this can be at times. How easy it can be to value worldly, worldly things over God. Or to place our desires above God's. To fill our days with TV and exercise and study and anything else and leave little time for him. What hope do we have? Well, after four chapters of indictment and rebuke against his audience, 
James pauses so briefly that you can easily miss it. In verse 6, James says, But he gives us more grace. How profound. This church that James is writing to, that seemingly has a lot of problems going on. They favour the rich and speak poorly of one another. They fight for power, and yet he says that God has more grace for them. God has more grace for us. By the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 17-18 says, Your sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven... Sacrifice for sins is no longer necessary. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2, and then verses 8 to 9, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And then from verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If James is making you feel like you don't shape up at times, like you don't always choose God, maybe you choose your desires over his, or the pleasures of the world over him, then know that God has more grace. God can turn your hearts back to him by his grace. As James continues in the second half of verse 6, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. If you humbly recognise your need for God, he has ample grace for you. But knowing James, he would never leave it there. Now James is Mr. Practical after all, and so he will always have a way for you to respond And so finally we see in this passage the appropriate response to such an offer of grace. James says from verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. For many of us that word submit may bring up a negative image in our mind. It can bring up images of power imbalances where where one person's will is imposed upon others. Perhaps for children it might bring up the image of a parent who says, do what you're told even though you disagree with it. Maybe for those who are a little bit older, it might evoke images of unpleasant medical procedures that you must submit to as your health deteriorates. Or for a uni student like myself, it may make you shudder at the assignment that you have to submit this Monday. But this is not a submission to a flawed person or to a tyrannical leader. It is a submission to the God of grace. In the second halves of verses 7 and 8, James writes, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I don't know about you, but I've found myself much more conscious of my hand sanitization in this period lately. I never used to wash my hands for 30 seconds at a time. In fact, if you had have asked the old me to do that, I would have told you that that sounds like a waste of water. I also never used to wash my hands as frequently as I do now. You touch a doorknob and all of a sudden the sanitizer comes out. 
in the pursuit of stopping the spread of COVID-19, I have become far more aware and have a far greater appreciation for hand washing. And I'm sure that like me, you too have become more aware of the things that you're touching on a daily basis. In fact, we avoid shaking hands with people because we're trying to keep our hands clean. And just the other day, I went to a pedestrian crossing and I used my knee to press the button instead of my hands to keep them clean. You see, keeping your hands clean is just as much about washing them as it is about avoiding things that will make them dirty. In light of God's grace to us, James encourages us not only to pursue good things, but also to avoid the bad. We are to resist the devil and the sin that entangles us, not give in to it because it's inevitable, but resist. And we are promised that as we resist the devil, as we push against the lives that we once lived, the devil will flee. But this fleeing only makes sense in light of the beginning of verse 8. James says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. As we come nearer and nearer to God, in his word and in prayer and in action, sin becomes further away. I'm reminded of the the parable that Jesus told of the prodigal son. I'm sure you know it, but I'll tell it in paraphrase anyway. A man has two sons, and the younger son comes to the, the father and he says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance while you are still alive. And so the father gives his younger son his share of the inheritance, and he goes and he spends it on wild living, fulfilling his every desire. And of course we know that after having a wild time, the son becomes poor. He has spent all his money and a famine descends on the land. And in his hunger, he stops and he reflects and he realises the error of his ways. And so he decides to return to his father in the hopes that he could be hired as a lowly servant, no longer fit to be called his son. And so as he prepares to humble himself before his father, he approaches his home in the distance. And while he is still a long way off, the father sees him approaching and he he turns and he runs to him and he embraces his son and he restores him back into his family. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself, recognising your sin your mistakes, your unfaithfulness. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom as you recognise anew your need for God's grace. And he will lift you up. As the psalmist writes, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. My prayer this morning is that you can encounter once again God's free grace. And that as you reflect and put aside your desires and the desires of the world, and as you humbly come before him, that he alone will lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for your grace towards us. Thank you that though you have a response that you desire in us, that you extend your grace in light of our failures, in light of our unfaithfulness to you. Father, we ask that this morning we will receive your grace in you, knowing that you have forgiven us from our sins. And so God, we come before you humbly. We recognise our failures. And we ask that in this period of trial and difficulty, as our spirits are low, that you would lift us. God, we rejoice in your goodness, in your love and your mercy. Father, thank you for who you are to us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Sean. Um, In some ways, there's a...